0: Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. my If you have your Bibles, I'll ask you to open them up to Philippians chapter 1. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I think it's on page 980 of the Pew Bible. This morning we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. But before we get started, I want to say that I just want to say thank you to uh, each one of you here at Fort Worth Presbyterian Church for the way that you have loved me and the way you've loved my family, the way you've cared for us over the last five years. Um, It was a bit of an adventure for us to leave the homeland of South Carolina and to come to a land we've never been to, but uh, we have become Texans apparently, and we're going to be staying in Texas. We're moving to Dallas, not very far away, to take a staff position at Providence Presbyterian Church. And so I just want to thank you for the way that you've encouraged me in my ministry and the way you've encouraged my family. Ryan and Laura Anderson are coming to take our place. They're moving from St. Louis, Missouri. And I know that Ryan and Laura will be anxious to get to know each one of you and would certainly appreciate your prayer for them as they transition and, and uh, a friendly uh, face and, you know, some warm hospitality when they arrive. So uh, thank you so much for the way that you've loved us and cared for us. This morning, um, I was trying to think about what I was going to preach on this, this Sunday, since this is probably my last sermon for a while here. And um, I haven't been feeling very preacher-like in certain ways over the last few months. Moving is a very stressful time. And any of you who have moved recently or uh, know that moving is just kind of, basically you're on your last nerve like 24-7. And that's kind of how it's been. And um, I was trying to think about where is there hope, In the Bible for me um, and for you, in the midst of really what seems sometimes to be not the most ideal circumstances. And so I was drawn to this letter that Paul writes because Paul is writing this letter and he's in jail. And I thought, this is amazing because Paul's in jail and it's not the kind of jails that we have around here, you know, where you get like your workout hours and you get to go and Kind of, you have air conditioner and you get three meals a day and those kind of things. And there are rules about how they treat you. This was the opposite kind of jail. This was the dungeon jail where he was chained by one arm to a wall, and that he was, you know, they were basically waiting for him to die. Nobody really cared that much about how well he was doing. Some, I guess, they were gracious enough to give him something to write with and something to write on. And what blows me away about Paul is, in the midst of this terrible circumstance, in the midst of great misery. He is full of joy. I was like, I've, I need what he's got. Because if Paul has all this joy in, in jail, then, there, then I want to find out what the secret to it is all about. And I don't know if any of you all need that. I, I would hope that all of us need that. But this morning, we're going to find out how you can have great joy in the midst of great misery and circumstances. So hear what God's Word has to say to us this morning. This is the Word of God from Philippians 1, verses 1 through 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's ask the Lord to open up his word to us this morning. Our great God and King, we thank you that you are great. We thank you that you're God. We thank you that you are our good King. And we thank you for your word, that your word that says all scriptures God breathed and is able or useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training us in righteousness that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Father, we need that to take place in our hearts this day. We need the good news of the gospel to penetrate our hearts and to change us. And Lord, I pray that you would begin with me, but Lord, I pray that you would do it with all that are here, that we would know the good news of the gospel this morning, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to understand. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Over the last few months and weeks, we've had a number of different worker types coming through our house to do different repairs and do different service, and so we found this great painter, his name's Larry, he'd love to give you his card, but Larry had an almost even greater guy, Mike, who's the sheetrock guy, and Larry said, Mike's going to cut you a deal, and so Mike came over, and Mike was walking around the house and telling us what we needed to do and what he could do, And, and so we got to talking a little bit, and I think Larry said, you know, Rob's a minister. And whenever a worker or anybody finds out that Rob's a minister, it's, uh, Rob's weird at that point because they start talking to you. They start talking to you different. And, and Mike said, okay, I'm, I'm going to try to watch my language when I'm around here. You know, I'm going to try to mind my P's and Q's. And I was like, don't worry about it, Mike. You just take care of the sheetrock. We won't <laughs> worry about the language. At, that, but at this point, the language was our last worry. But anyway, um, so Mike is a... Mike and I, and what, the other thing that happens when you tell people that you're a minister is they want to start talking about ministry things, spiritual things. And I, I like to do that. And so Mike was telling me about his involvement with his church and where he had, you know, kind of what his current status was in church or, and all those kind of things. And one of the things he said to me was, you know, Rob, me and Jesus are on the same page on virtually everything in life except for one thing. And I couldn't wait to hear what that one thing was. And, <laughs> and he said... He loves thieves and I hate them. He said, "But you know, I'm going to have to start getting my life on G I'm start I'm going to have to get my life where Jesus is. I'm going to have to learn to love thieves." And I I was just kind of my jaw dropped and I was thinking, "Wow, what an amazing articulation of the gospel." I mean, I've talked to a lot of church, you know, really well-read Bible people and church goer types and they wouldn't be able to articulate the gospel. So well, I mean, he understands that Jesus loves thieves and he hates thieves. So he started telling me about some of the property that, property that he had lost and some of the things that had happened in his life and some of the reasons why he hated thieves. And so I'm sitting here working around my house and just thinking. And over the last few weeks, I've rolled that conversation and a few others through my mind. And so this past Monday, I went out to my tool shed to grab a couple of things that I needed to do for some projects, and I noticed there was some extra space in there, and I I knew I hadn't cleaned it out and Kendall hadn't. Clean it out. I didn't think, and so I, I was looking for that. My lawnmower. I had a lawnmower that was stolen two years ago, and they came back for a second lawnmower, apparently. And so um, I noticed that Wells's bike, my lawnmower, and my backpack blower were all gone. And so I went inside, and what I and, and basically I continued to do what I've been doing for the last few months, and I stewed over it, and I was angry about it, and I was bitter, and. And, and that conversation that Mike had had with me rolled through my mind, and I remembered Mike said, "You know, Jesus and I are virtually on the same page in everything except for one thing. I hate thieves. he loves thieves, and I hate them. And I and I wanted to say, you know what, Mike? I've got a new caveat to that. I don't know if Jesus and I are on the same page on anything right now because I hate thieves, and I hate a lot of other things too. I was a, I was angry, and, and you know, there's there's different. I've been, and what I've really been angry about is myself." I've, I've been mindful of, you know, Ephesians keeps rolling through my mind. You know, fathers don't exasperate your children. And if you were to ask Wells and Simeon, you know, is your dad exasperating you or is he loving you well? I think they would be able to say he's exasperating us. You know, he's, he has been wearing us out. He's not been loving us well. You know, Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. I haven't been doing so well at that. The good shepherd loves his sheep. Loving your sheep. And I've been overwhelmed, in a sense, with how the circumstances of my life are getting the best of me. And I'm not blaming the circumstances as the excuse. I'm blaming myself. But what I'm seeing come out of my life is not fruit and and wonder and awe and flourishing, but so often lately it's been kind of that old man shining through. And the frustration that I have with myself and there's been times when I've been thinking about it and I've thought, you know, I just kind of, I don't think I'll ever change. I don't think I'll ever love thieves. I don't think that I'll ever do this or I'll ever do that. And, and, I, and I've started to kind of deduce that if I'm never going to change, then God most likely is going to give up on me. Now, I'm not in the deep, dark depression right now, so I don't want you to worry about that. But I do want to say, but I'm hoping to bring you into this with me for a moment. So I don't want you to think so much about me, but I'm wanting to say this because I want you to think about you Do you ever get to that point in your life where you really look yourself in the mirror and you really wonder, will I ever change? Because if God really knew everything about me, He would want to give up on me. He would want to quit on me. If the person sitting next to me in church knew me, they wouldn't want me to be here. Do you ever get to the end of your rope, to the end of yourself, where you wonder if you ever really will be like Jesus? if God really will continue to work in you because you've promised him time and time again, I'm not going to be angry anymore. And you're angry again. I'm not going to do this anymore. And you do it again. All the things, all the promises, all the covenants, all the vows that you make to God. And every day you look yourself in the mirror and you're reminded that you're not who you want to be. You're not who you thought you were going to be. And you're not sure if God's going to get you there. You see, in times like that, there's really no reason to rejoice. But this morning, God gives us a reason to rejoice in times like that. He says there's good news for people whose lives are bad news. You see, what we find out in this passage this morning is that we have a real reason to rejoice. And listen to this. If you hear anything I say today, then hear this. God never gives up on us. God never gives up on us. The most marvelous thing that, I've, that has come into my life in the last week, this has not been the last week, this has been all of my Christian life, but God has reminded me of this, is that God finishes what he starts always. God's grace always finishes what he starts. You see, when God begins a work in your life, he always completes it. He never stops. He never gives up. It doesn't matter how many times you've promised that you're going to get your life back together. Those promises don't mean anything to God. You see, his, his doings with us are all of grace. And God's grace always transforms us. He is going to make us all like Jesus. All of us who He's begun to work in, He's going to make us like Jesus. You see, even when our sin and our circumstances seem to be getting the best of us, even when we have every reason to believe that God has given or will give up on us, there's still hope for us because God's grace always finishes what it starts. I love the words of the hymn we sang this morning. Listen to these words we sang. How sad our state by nature is, our sin, how deep it stains, and Satan binds our captive minds fast in his slavish chains. But there's a voice of sovereign grace. Sounds from the sacred word. Listen to this. O ye despairing sinners come, and trust upon the Lord. You see, there's a reason to rejoice because God's grace is real. He always finishes what He starts. Now, I was thinking about, well, okay, but maybe you might be thinking, that's all true, but Paul... You know, he was writing to these people and he's telling them how he's always excited. I mean, look in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with you because of your partnership in the gospel i mean paul's thankful for them paul's happy for them paul's excited for all of them he's got all this affection for them their love's abounding more and more and you're thinking yeah as well paul's giving them a lot of hope because there's a lot of reason for hope i mean look in their lives apparently they're doing pretty well they've got their life on track you know they're they're, you know, they're sold out for Jesus. They're, they're hard-charging Christians. And so, yeah, there's a lot of hope. And I understand what you're saying, but I'm not really sure that's true. But, but, no, I don't really think that was the situation. Because there's a couple of things we need to know. Number one is Paul was a great man. But Paul himself says, I am the foremost sinner. As Paul looked around the globe, the face of the earth, there was one thing that Paul was certain of, 1 Timothy 1, is that he was the worst sinner on planet earth. And he wasn't saying that he was in the sense past tense, but he says, I am. I currently am the foremost sinner. So he was a mess. So he's this messy apostle that God has sent out to go grow the kingdom. And he's writing to a bunch of other messed up people, namely the Philippians in this situation. Because if you look in verse two, I mean chapter two, and we're not going to read it, but he's like, if you have any he basically says, if you believe the gospel, then kind of get rid of the selfish ambition and the vain conceit and all the rivalry. There's one of the verses that parents love to use with their children that spouses may be a little bit tense or careful to use with their spouse, which is, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become faithful and pure. wonder why Paul is telling them to stop grumbling. Could it be that they were grumblers and that they were complainers, like many of us are? There's there's tons of stuff in this book that basically points out to us that though Paul was excited for all of them and he was giving all of them hope, they were all messed up. There wasn't a single one of them that was doing great. There wasn't a single one of them that had this shiny, perfect resume. And so the question is, how can Paul have so much joy for all of these messy people? How can Paul always pray with joy? How can he always remember them with joy and gladness? How can his heart overflow with joy when he's messy and when he's he's writing to a bunch of messed up people. How can he always be joyful? And there's two reasons why, and I want us to look at them this morning. Because God's grace is always at work in God's people. That's the first reason. The reason that Paul could be excited, the reason that Paul could be overflowed with joy wasn't because of them, but it was because of God. Because God's grace is always at work in God's people. Look in verse 2. Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. You see, Paul's reminding the Philippians where goodness, where grace comes from. And grace comes from God. God is the giver of all good things. God gives us grace. God gives us peace. God makes us his sons and his daughters. How does he do it? How does he become our father? Through the Lord Jesus the Christ. Because he gave us his only son. He doesn't make us as children by us getting our act together. He doesn't make us as children by us getting back on the right track. He makes us as children by sending his son to die for worthless, sinful people like you and me. That's how he does it. And so he can say, my friends, be of good cheer. Grace and peace to you because God loves to love you. God gives hope to the hopeless. God gives help to the helpless. You see, and Paul also says something unique in verse 1. You see, this grace that God began is already working in you. He writes to the saints in Christ Jesus. Saints was kind of a noble way of, of calling them Christian by saying, you know, you're set apart. He's saying, you all have been set apart. You're different, you're not out of the world. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. You are saints, and you're saints in Christ Jesus. He says, God's your Father. You're children. He says, you have, a new, you have a new name, and you have a new identity, and you have a new purpose. You are servants of Jesus Christ. You aren't who you used to be, and you're not who you're going to be. But God is working in your lives. God's grace is always working in His people. Look in verse 5. He says, because of your partnership, because of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. He's saying, my friends, we are family now. We're partners in the gospel. We have fellowship. Fellowship doesn't mean we're really good at eating coffee, or drinking coffee and eating donuts in a narthex. Fellowship means that we are united in Christ. That we're family. That we're one together. That we have the same, we have the same father. That we have a new identity that we are citizens of of God's kingdom and that we have a new purpose to expand and to grow His kingdom and that God is working in us and through us and changing us and changing the world around us, by us, that we are partners in the gospel. Why is Paul overjoyed with them? Because they have been changed by God's grace. That's good news, my friends. That's good news because God's grace is always working in us. Look at verse 6. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work. And the word here to begin means a decisive, a deliberate act, an intentional act. This is a very weighty word that God is the one who begins our salvation. And God is the one who ends our salvation. God was determined. And when God entered in a relationship with the Philippians, when he enters into a relationship with us, he enters with a purpose. And he plans to complete it. And Paul is overjoyed because God's grace has begun to work in these people. That's why he's excited. That's why he prays with joy. But One of my favorite parts is verse 7. When he says, it is right for me to feel this way about you. It is right. What I'm saying is right. This isn't wrong. This is right. God's grace is rich. It's free. We sing about it every Sunday, but I don't know if we really understand it. It is good. The gospel is always good. It's always good news for people whose lives are bad news. It's always rest for the weary. And he says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I hold you in my heart, listen to this, for you are all partakers with me of grace. You see, if you are a partaker of God's grace, then there is reason to rejoice. It's right to do so. But I think some of us may say, well, I don't know. How, how could that be possible? I mean, how, how could Paul say that? Because, you know, we're, we're aware, like if you turn over to Philippians chapter 4, the, like, the thing that we all dread and fear happens in verse 2, where Paul calls out two people, Yodia and Syntyche. Okay? He says, hey, ladies, we've got some problems in the church. Y'all are quarreling and you're making a mess of things. And so please try to get along. Please try to get along. I mean, imagine if out of this whole bunch, if two people were singled out, or, you know, so that would that would be a very awkward moment. And you're thinking, you know, and you were just telling me, Rob, about how they're quarreling and grumbling and they're selfish. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know about that. I don't know if it's right for him to feel that way about them because they don't really have their act together. But I think our problem is so oftentimes when we look at ourselves, so oftentimes more likely when we look at other people, when we look at the church, you know, most of us have plenty of complaints about the church. And... um I'm sure a lot of you go home and there's something you don't like about it. And it's because we approach the church more often as consumers than as servants. But we go and we think about the things that we're disenfranchised with about the church. Oftentimes it has to do with somebody that's at the church. We're not really feeling encouraged about them. And we're likely to say, you know, they've got some, we've got some people in the church that really need to kind of get on the right track. And um, I think our problem is is that we're oftentimes so nearsighted. We can't see past our nose. And Paul is able to say this because he has gospel glasses that he's looking at the Philippians through. He's looking at them through the lens of God's grace. He's seeing them not as the world sees them, but he's seeing them as God sees them. He's seeing them not as who they are now, but as who they are now in Christ and who God is making them, who they are becoming by His grace. And so Paul is overjoyed. He's overjoyed because they are being changed by God's grace to them in Christ. And I think it's interesting that Paul is able to say this to all the saints, that he's able to say to all the saints they have a reason to rejoice, that they have a reason to have confidence and certainty and surety, that he's able to tell Yodi and Syntyche that I'm thankful for you and all my remembrance of you. I think it's interesting. And I, I think it's interesting for this reason because... I think oftentimes we approach the church kind of like students approach group projects. You know, the dreaded group project. And the the worst group project is the one where you don't get to pick the people in your own group. You're... You're, it's a forced group, and you know you've got the lazy guy that never comes to class and's lazing around and taking naps and playing games on his iPhone in the back, and you're thinking, and he can't even talk a complete sentence or use proper English, and now he's in your group, and so you're pretty much dead in the water. And so, you know, the only solace you have at that moment is that the group will get a total grade, and that each individual in the group will be able to grade the other individuals in the group. And so you're like, okay, the only thing I'm gonna get out of this is throwing him under the bus at the very end because he's a loser. And so I think, in a sense, that's kind of how we approach the church sometimes. You know, we're like, okay, I may not be perfect, but the way I'm seeing it is I'm looking around, and there's a lot of weak links around here. We've got to tell people to start tightening it up. Okay, because if Paul was going to write us a letter, he would be pretty down because there's a lot of people here. I mean, I'm seeing people that never do what they're supposed to do. They never help out. They're never here. They're complaining and all those kind of things. And so, you know, I know Paul couldn't write with joy about this place because... He would see a lot of weak links. He'd see more than just two, you know, there'd be more. And I think the thing is, is that that church isn't like group projects because the gospel doesn't operate upon the same economy as group projects do. You see, the reason you get a good grade on a group project is because you perform well. It's all about your performance. But the reason that you get accepted and approved by God has nothing to do with your performance. It has everything to do with Jesus' performance on your behalf. You see, the gospel says, if we, if we were to apply it, what we would do is we'd show up and we'd say, Hey, I'm, I'm the most messed up person here. <laughs> and that's why I'm the happiest person here, because Jesus loves messed up people. Because Jesus, by his grace alone, endears me to God and makes me a child of God. You see, the gospel is good news. The gospel is not about getting your life together. One of my favorite quotes on grace, and this might be it, is from a Baptist minister named Abraham Booth. And listen to what he says, I love it. He says, Divine grace disdains to be assisted in the performance of the work which peculiarly belongs to itself by the poor, imperfect performances of men. Attempts to complete what grace begins, betray our pride and offend the Lord, but cannot promote our spiritual interest, Grace is either absolutely free or it is not at all. He who professes to look for salvation by grace either believes in his heart to be saved entirely by it or he acts inconsistently in affairs of the greatest importance. You see, grace is either free or it's not at all. Grace doesn't want any assistance. It's either God who does it all or we, have God, or we don't have God at all. Now, a different version, my friend Jean LaRue says it this way. He says, if we really get grace, we will see that there are no mirrors in the gymnasium of Grace only windows to a world doing without it. And I think that's the reason why Paul is so overjoyed and why Paul is telling the Philippians that they can have great joy and certainty. It's because their security is not tied to their performance, but it's tied to the goodness of God. You see, it's not about how good we are, but it's about how good God is. Now, I'm not trying to encourage license. I'm not trying to say, okay, so go out and do whatever you want to do. You see, if God's grace saves you, that's not how you'll be. And I'm not trying to preach universalism, that everybody's saved. But I am saying this, that if God begins a work in you by His grace, He is really working. And the second reason we have to rejoice is not only that He's really working, but it's that God's grace always completes God's work. God's grace always completes God's work. Look in verse 6. I am sure of this. I am sure of this. When Paul says, I'm sure of this, he means, I am sure of this. I'm certain that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That is good news. I've been doing a lot of projects around the house over the last few months. (laughs) And I've got, I've set my iPod on play and I'm playing all these songs and I'm playing some of my favorite songs. And so one of my favorite groups is the AVET Brothers. And so, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm looking at half-painted rooms and at projects that have never been completed. And shame, boatloads of shame, day after day, more of the same's coming on. You know, then, then the next one of the other songs, All My Mistakes, another really uplifting title while you're working around your house, The Weight of Lies, which really beat you down when <laughs> at that last moment. And then one of my favorite ones, the first, the first line of the song begins this way, I haven't finished a thing since I started my life. I don't feel much like starting now. I'm just like, that's what I'm saying. I haven't finished a thing in my life since I started. I don't want to paint that wall. God is not going to change me. I am hopeless. I might as well quit. I'm going home. And um, I am home. I want to get out of here. <laughs> but um, Jean LaRue, who I quoted a minute ago, is one of my favorite. Uh, he's I think he's one of the greatest preachers there is. And he's, he, he's talking about pastors. And he's saying, he says, I'm not pastor fit and trim. And then when I read, when I heard him say that about himself, I thought, well, you haven't met me yet. Because I'm certainly not pastor fit and trim. And he says, you know, I don't have the tight, quiet time abs. I don't have the perfectly sculpted prayer notebook or the high scripture memory metabolism. Those aren't the traits that really, you know, characterize me. And at least not, yeah, they don't, they don't characterize me. not going to qualify it. They don't. And um, so I've wondered, you know, okay, well, what does that mean for me? You know, like what does that mean for you? If you don't have that perfectly sculpted prayer notebook or the tight quiet time abs or the high scriptural memory metabolism, you know what hope is there for you. And on the one hand, there you could say, "Well, here's the hope. You all need to get up out of here today, and you need to go get tight quiet time abs, and then come back and let us know when you get them. And I'm going to be your drill instructor, and we're going to get there. We're going to fight to the finish. We could do that. We would call that moralism, or we could believe the gospel." And we could realize that spiritual discipline is extremely important. We ought to be passionate about it. We ought to pursue it with a passion. But it does not endear us to God. The only thing that endears us to God is His grace. You see, God actually has every reason to give up on us, no matter how spiritually fit we are or how spiritually flabby we are. God has every reason to give up on us. Because even our best things, if they were put into the columns of God's economy, into the column of debt and credit, even our best things would be still be debts. Even our best things would still be a liability. But you see, we have a reason to rejoice because God's grace is at work in us. God's grace always finishes what it begins. Now, I could tell you a lot of things about this, but I want to ask you to bear with me for just a minute because I want to tell you a very long story. And I'm going to tell one more story and then we'll be done. But... I, I, I've, I've, this is something I've been trying to get. I've been trying to get verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I've been trying to get what that means. And over the past five years, God has been helping me to get what that means. When we moved to Fort Worth, um, we moved the, the home we live in. A lot of the houses in our neighborhood have back apartments. And our neighbor had a back apartment. And there was a man living back there. His name was Chris. Chris Morris. And Chris drove, a, you've heard me talk about Chris before. He drove that radio truck and used that blowtorch to keep, keep him warm in the winter because his heat didn't work, didn't have a key to turn the ignition, been arrested. He said a hundred times. He said he'd been in jail a hundred times. I know he did five years in prison for theft. He was an alcoholic since he was 13 years old. Um, he was a liar. He was addicted to prescription pain medicine, and he would get it in illegal ways. Um, he was in deep debt. He was completely undependable, very unhealthy. Um, And the nicest word you could use in a church context for Chris would be, he was just a complete and utter scoundrel. And honestly, this is what he was. He was the kind of person that your mom and dad tell you never to spend any time with. He's the kind of person that your mom and dad say, and remember this, stay away from people like that. But he was my neighbor. And um, so I can still remember the very first time I met Chris. We were standing out in front of my house, and he asked me what I did. And again, I told him I was a minister. And his first words, he says, what kind? I think I said, I'm a Presbyterian minister. And he said, you're not a Calvinist, are you? And I said, yes, I am. He said, oh, beep. You know, he also was a user of foul language. And so that was another thing that happened. But the thing that was interesting is that over the last four years, he became one of my closest friends. And um, I can remember... I would lay awake in my bed at night, and about 9.30 or 10, almost, I'd say at least three times a week, if not more, I'd hear his truck fire up. It was a really loud truck. And sometimes I could hear him kind of making noise, and I knew he was angry. And it seemed like every night at about 10 o'clock at night, he got pretty down and pretty angry. And so he would go, he would fire up the truck, he would already be uh, pretty toasty, and he would head up to the, to the uh, convenience store to, to get some more alcohol and come back. And... Um, there was times when I could tell kind of by his mannerisms how how sober he was. And I can remember standing out in this driveway and saying, Chris, come on, brother. Let's not do it tonight. Let's not go out tonight. Let's look, let's go back inside. You don't need it. You can do it. You can do it. Um some and most of the time it, it, that never happened. Um he ate Christmas dinner with us a couple of times. One one Christmas I remember had these big fat steaks. I was so excited about eating them in this Awesome bottle of wine. And Chris showed up uninvited. But uh, we put the wine away because you can't drink wine with Chris there. And we cut the steaks in half. And it ended up being probably, at first I was a little bitter over it, it ended up being probably one of the greatest Christmases we had because we spent it with Chris. He came over for a Thanksgiving dinner at least twice. Um, but what, the thing I remember most about Chris was how he responded to himself. And this happened more than once, but I'll, I'll just use this one as an example for all. One night I can remember that he was really loud, and I could tell he was really drunk. And he fired up his truck, and he, he squealed, squealed the tires out of the driveway, and he had a little dog named Ginger that was a schnauzer that stayed inside. And um, I can remember that we just kept waiting to hear him come back. So normally he would go to the convenience store and come back, and I didn't hear him come back. And that whole night, Kendall and I laid in bed and we hardly slept a wink because we were worried sick about Chris. And we thought, he, And so the next morning I got up, first thing I did was go over to his driveway to see if his truck was there. But I knew it wasn't there because I never heard it come back and it wasn't there. And so I, I went and knocked on, I tried to unlock the door because I knew Ginger was inside. I wanted to help her get out and, and I knocked on the door, but it was locked. And so I was going to go across and ask Stan, see if he had a key, our other neighbor. And when I got almost all the way back down the driveway, the door swung open and then it was Chris. And he said, uh, Rob, Rob. And I said, man, I'm glad you're alive. I thought you were dead. I, I said, I heard you leave last night. And he said, oh, I'll, I'll be, I'm sorry, man. I'll be over there in a while. I'll be over there in a while. So about two hours later, I'm sitting in my living room and I get a knock on the door and Chris comes over. 40, 45, year, I think it was about 45, 46 at this time, grown man. Um, he comes over and he weeps and he weeps and he weeps on my shoulder. And he tells me that he is the most rotten person in the world, that he does not know how he can live, that he is so ashamed, that he is so sorry, that he has made the dumbest mistakes in his life. He told me how he drove through two people's yards. He was wild out of control. And if it weren't for a friend that helped save him last night, he'd have probably killed somebody and himself. And he talked about how all of his life was a failure. I can remember one Sunday we had him come to Fort Worth Press for a Christmas service. And when Joy to the World started up, you know, he's come to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. He sprinted out from over there, ran in the narthex, and wept in a chair because he couldn't believe the gospel could really be that good. He would tell me that over and over again, he would tell me that he would, he said, you know, in the morning, that's my time with the Lord. And he, would, he had this crummy bathroom, but he kept it as clean as it could be. And he would put towels on the floor in the bathroom. He'd turn the shower up as high as he could get it, build steam in the bathroom, and he would lay prostrate on the floor, and he would weep, and he would wail, and he would repent over his sin to God and beg God to change him. Well, it's a long story, but he ended up being evicted from his apartment. And so Chris moved, and he's been gone for the last eight months. But I called to check in on him, and he was actually holding down a job, and he was actually doing fairly decent. Um, he always was. That, he was that guy that would always tell you, "I'm going to get my life on track," and then he wouldn't be on track but for a day or two. He always was making promises, and he was never keeping them. Well, about three Saturdays ago, or excuse me, three Sundays ago, I had a knock on the door from a neighbor across the street named Stan. And Stan said, "I hate be the bearer of bad news, but Chris was killed in an automobile accident last night. He was in Burleson, and he was driving out, and he got T-boned by an F-350, and he died." So I called his mom on the phone, and I'd met her once and talked to her a couple of times. And she was broken down and said, you know, we're going to have the funeral at the Lighthouse Church in Burleson. We'd love for you to come. And if you want to say a word, you're welcome to. So we, we showed up, and this whole church was filled with people that probably my mom and dad would have told me not to, to get to know. Um, so we walk in, and and, it was, and and the pastor says, anybody want to say anything about Chris? And pop up, like three pastors pop up all three, these three pastors who had all had intimate contact with Chris start telling, I mean, this is a kind of scoundrel guy. You can't act like he was a really a good guy. You know, he really was a good guy. and loved his neighbor. He wasn't. That wasn't Chris. You can't try to like spin it to where he was a saint. There was no spinning here. Everybody knew that wasn't him. So they all said, well, you know, he had his problems. and um. But they all talked about how just how he knew himself intimately and how he wanted to change. And the pastor got up and said, you know, and he just preached the gospel and talked about how the gospel really actually had changed Chris, Chris's life. And he gave two examples, and one of them was this. He said, one night Chris saw the movie The Passion of the Christ in my uh, movie cabinet and asked me if he could watch it. And I said, sure. So he took it and watched it, and, he, and the next morning he pulled me aside in the warehouse and he said, i got to tell you, for three hours last night I screamed, I wailed, and I wept as I watched that movie. And he was overwhelmed at what Christ... He said, I thought I had a hard life. He was overwhelmed at what Christ had to endure on our behalf in order to give us righteousness, freedom, and forgiveness. And then he always asked the same guy, this pastor friend, if he could come over and have recliner time. And recliner time meant that he was going to lay back in the recliner and his pastor friend was going to put on a video. And it was a praise and worship video. And there was this one song he loved to, to hear sung. And this is, these are the words... Oh, the blood, crimson love, price of life's demand, shameful sin placed on him, the hope of every man. Oh, the blood of Jesus washes me. Oh, the blood of Jesus shed for me. What a sacrifice that saved my life. Yes, the blood, it is my victory. Save your son, holy one, slain so I can live. See the lamb, the great I am, who takes Away, my sin. Oh, what love, no greater love. Grace, how can it be that in my sin, yes, even then, he shed his blood for me. I got to speak at the funeral for a minute. And I stood up and I, I wanted to make clear. Because I, I knew from talking to Chris and I knew from hearing what the pastor said and from kind of collaborating with some of the other pastors there, that to the world's eyes, he was the most lost scoundrel in all the world. But let me ask you this. How many of you have ever wept and wailed over your sin? How many of you have ever cried and begged and pleaded with Jesus to change your life? Because you can't believe who you are and you want to be different and you want to be like Christ and you're not. How many of you have ever come to the end of yourself? And I can tell you this. It can count on one hand how many times I've wept over my sin. Probably most of them was because I got caught and it just was very inconvenient. But I stood up and I said, you know what, my friends, there's good news for Chris, because the Bible doesn't paint a picture of us running into heaven, you know, fit and trim with our quiet time abs, but it paints a picture of us collapsing into the arm of our father, our king and our shepherd. And it says he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And you see, the good news of the gospel, it's not about how good we are, but it's about how good he is. And the other day when I was feeling sorry for myself and I was down on myself, I thought about this catechism that says, you know, the souls of believers at their death immediately pass into glory and are made perfect in holiness. And their bodies rest in the grave until the resurrection. And there was a part of me that was excited and there was a part of me that was frustrated. Because I thought, Chris is made perfect in holiness. That is unbelievable. That that can't happen. There's no way that he could be made perfect in holiness. I thought, he is perfect. And I'm down here a pastor. If he only knew all the sin that was going through my heart. I mean, on the other hand, I thought, wow, how encouraging that is. But it's not encouraging because if the gospel can change Chris, it can change me. That's moralism. That means that I think I'm better than him. But it's, it's good. It's encouraging to me because God saves and changes even the most heinous sinners, even people like you, even people like me. God's grace is good. How does he do it? How does God Change How does God not give up on us? Why does God not give up on us? Because of Jesus. Because he gave his only son for us. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. I'll close with this story. I was thinking about, you know, over 11 years of campus ministry, there are certain students that just stick out. There are certain students you'll, that you'll never forget. And there was a girl in our group named Catherine. And Catherine, let me tell you, she was a piece of work. And she had the hotline to my phone and to my intern's phone. I spent countless hours with her. I counseled her at all hours of the week. And whenever I would get with her, she was very, she was extremely depressed. She was angry. She was bitter. She was resentful. She hated everything about life. I tried to give her biblical counseling, and I can remember she would look at me and she would say, "I hate you. I hate you." You know, and you love to get together with people that say that to you because it's a lot of fun. <laughs> But I would share the gospel with her. And I would say, you know, there's good news. There's good news for people whose lives are bad news. And she was always intrigued by the gospel. But I don't know if she really thought it was real. If it really, you know, it couldn't be for her. And um, so I'll never forget. There was one, one, one day, my intern, I was over, my intern and I were together with her and she was having a major freak out. And this girl, had, at this part in her, point in her life, I mean, she had some very serious issues. And so I just felt like, you know, we had done everything that we could do, and now it was time to ratchet up the intensity to, like, maximum level. So we ended up doing something I never had to do before, but we had her committed into the hospital, into the psychiatric wing. And you want to talk about hating me. At that moment, she hated me more than anything in the world, and she wanted to kill me. And that was a very uh, whew, that was a surreal moment. And from her perspective, her life couldn't get any worse, and it actually had ended at that moment. And I can remember her trying to figure out how she was going to put the pieces back together after that. Well, we always say that in campus ministry that we really don't care what kind of 18 to 22-year-old a student is. We care about what kind of, you know, 35-year-old they're going to be, what kind of 45-year-old they're going to be, what kind of 55-year-old they're going to be. This past week, when I was doing some work and just thinking about what was going on in my life and needed a little encouragement after losing the blower and the lawnmower, I looked on my Facebook And I noticed that Catherine had made a post on her wall. And this is what she wrote. Love cannot from its post withdraw, nor death, nor hell, nor sin, nor law. Can turn the surety's heart away. He'll love his own to endless day. My friends, that's the good news of the gospel. That's why we have reason to rejoice. When you're living on the edge and you can't hang on any longer, remember this. The God is hanging on to you. When your circumstances and your sin is getting the best of you and you know and you believe in your heart that surely God has quit on you and he's going to give up on you, remember this, that God's grace is always working in God's people and that God's grace always finishes what it starts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God of grace, that you love to love us, that you delight to show us mercy and grace. Lord, I pray that that we would be lovers of grace. I pray that we be lovers of grace. Grace, grace, marvelous grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times. Directions to the church and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful.